Hi, and welcome to Cold Turkey Podcast. This week, I'm with Kenny. Um, Kenny has not only flipped his life around, but you know, to attain um, some kind of peace of mind, uh, he has dug as deep as he could in discovering himself and discovering some of the mechanism that made him uh, either you know, like make mistakes or repeat mistakes as he did in his life. So um, I don't want to spoil too much because I want you to discover uh, a fantastic human being as I did while uh, talking with him. Um, speaking of which, you can find the description of where you can find Kenny and where is he uh, active online with the, on the description of the podcast uh, that you can find on where you're listening to the podcast. And uh, as well as if you want to leave a comment, if you want to write me a note, you know, like there's a Facebook page that is a podcast called Turkey or Cold Turkey Podcast, you're going to find it there. And, uh, and and I encourage you to put reviews, you know, like comments, reviews, thumbs up, stars, whatever it is. Uh, that makes my day, you know, like when I see those comments. So without further ado, uh, I'll leave it with uh, Kenny. Have a great listening. Hi, Kenny. How you doing? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's a pleasure. Um, let's start like I do with every of my guests. You know, like pretty much, you know, like draw me a picture of where do we start? You know, like what's your first, either you being witnesses of substance abuse or substance consumption. And uh, yeah, you know, like let's start like your, your, your life story uh, with that. All right, I'll give you the kind of reader's digest of where I started and how I got here. Yep. And really, um, ever since I was a kid, I could just walk in a room and feel what was going on in people. I've heard people throw a lot of different names at that. I don't care what you call it. It's just something I could do. Um, but as a society, we don't teach anything about how to be a parent, how to have relationships, deal with our emotions. So you're just kind of left with it. But a seminal moment for me came when I was 10 years old. I woke up in the middle of the night just to use the bathroom and I opened up the door and there was my mom passed out naked on the toilets when I found out she was an alcoholic. Now, my parents were 16 and 18 when they were married, had four kids by 21 and 23. And again, because we don't teach any of this stuff, like she should have been a crack addict too. I mean, um, you know, kids raising kids, they did the best they could, but let's face it, they fell short. You know, we don't, even as adults, we don't go learn about this stuff. And so because well, of that, go ahead. Did, did beforehand you, you, you would see, you, do you remember seeing like, like alcohol or, you know, like, or drinking or partying, you know, like, was it, cause I, I tend to ask the question about, you know, like, was it like a festive alcohol consumption at home? Was it like more an angry or sad, you know? Like, no, it, it, no, you never noticed that. I mean, my parents threw parties, but it wasn't like my dad would come home. I mean, every once in a while I'd have beer after work. My dad wasn't a big drinker. Okay. Um, never noticed my mom drinking. Now, looking after that moment, like my mom used to give me back rubs at night sometimes. And I remember her walking out of the room and stumbling. And yeah. I remember thinking as a kid, wow, mom must have bad eyesight. And then, you know, after that moment, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Was drunk. Wow. You know, so it, it completely colored the affection 
you know, that I thought I was getting. Yeah. Do, do, so, do, you, become, do you become a parent from that day on? We For, all do. Yeah, of yeah. course. My mom, my mom attached to me. Um, I was my mom's favorite. I mean, she said it for years and that's incredibly damaging to a child yeah. to have a favorite. It's horrific. It's something called enmeshment. It's, it's not good. The other thing my mom used to do is, um, when I got a little bit older, more of a teenager, um, she used to be drunk and I have to be careful cause I can still imitate her. But if I do, I can literally induce trauma in other people. It's so Like it's still so present, but she'd come up to me and, um, say to me, you know, Kenny, when I want to drink, will you give me a hug instead? So now she made me responsible for her sobriety. And of course, as a kid, you're like, mom, I'll do anything. And uh, what is the family picture? You know, like, so, you know, like you, you, you talked about your mom and dad, what's the fraternity, any brother and sister in there? Yeah. I have all of, there's four of us within five years of each other. So okay. I have an older brother who's four years older, older sister who's two years older. And then my younger brother and I were less than a year apart. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, that was pure chaos in our house. And, and any of the other siblings, you know, like kind of witness or bearing that load? Oh, yeah. yeah. They, we all ended up with different addictions. Um, and you know, everybody, resolves or and acts out their trauma differently you know from childhood we all have different maladaptive coping skills and so whether they went to food or whatever it was um yeah it was with each individual it's not the same because parents interact with each individual like my older brother was always much closer to my father than any of us and so i had a real void there you know until his death when i realized you know, in some conversations, I was actually his favorite. And, but because he didn't realize it, I was so much like him. I was the one he would disparage all the time. And yeah. because I was his unrealized potential. So when he saw me, he saw what he could have been. And so that's why he cut my legs out from under me. It's pretty um, much, the, you know, like some saying of, you know, like you, you beat up the best horse you got, not the, yeah. you know, like so great way of saying it. That's a, I love that. I wish I had a thought of, I mean, it's an old analogy, but yeah, I've never thought of describing it that way. And, and yeah, that's exactly, he, he even said, you know, we knew he was dying. He had about six months and, and, and just, you know, had great conversations with him. And, you know, he, he turned to me and he's like, you know, Kenny, of all the kids, you got the least, you know, and, and that, that ownership, um, cause that was true. I, I did. Now I got smothered yeah. by mom, but as far as financial assistance, support, things like that. Yeah. I was, I was always left to fend for myself. We all were did or severely myself. I was cool. You know, like that, you know, like those, I tend to use like the, the elements, like the static element, uh, that are, you know, like the primary static element in everyone's life, you know, like, so you've got the parents, you've got the fraternity, and then you got school, which, you know, like pretty much yeah. everyone has to start school until wherever, but you know, like, so how was your relation with authority, meaning like your first contact were actually school? I was a straight A student until I found my mom. And then yeah. from that on, my grade struggled. And, you know, it was, I mean, it devastated me. I, I still... I can remember when I opened up the door and saw her, I felt this, 
like Star Trek, you know how they, the old Star Trek beamed me up? Yep. That electrical feeling starting in my legs in my feet, moving up through my body and literally screaming. I was screaming inside myself, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. Like I inherently knew that the kid who walked into that bathroom was dying. I would never be the same again. It was leaving me. And and from that moment on, my whole life has been, you know, a, a disaster and also a blessing of, you know, reattaching to that <coughs> child before that incident. And and so how does you know like life pretty much you know like so 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 you, I guess you wake up your mom, you you shake her up and you know like so yeah, get screaming, mom, mom, or you know, I thought she was dead. I'm like, please, I was begging, mom, wake up, wake up. That's the last memory I have of did I go get my dad? I must have. The next memory I have is a couple hours later, the sun's coming up and, and I'm just bawling. You know, my dad has his arm around me and I'm just bawling. And finally, I asked him, I said, how long has this been going on? He said, and he just said, Kenny, it's been going on for years. And in that moment, like I felt that was my first experience with utter shame because the way I heard my dad was and what I said to him is I went, oh, my God, I feel so selfish. This is the first time I've ever seen this and you've been dealing with it for years and you were 10 right yeah 10 years old and so you almost instantly become a parent an adult uh, a carer and uh almost yeah i was i was the emotional center for the family I, because of what i because of my ability to feel i i it became heightened too because i could sense my dad was beat to death as a kid he never hit us but he was filled with that rage so I could tell by the way his foot hit the floor in the morning what the day was going to be like. The last time my mom drank, I was 2,000 miles away playing hockey in Canada, and I turned the corner of this house I was in. I stopped and went, wait a minute. Step back, two steps, grabbed the phone, called home, and I'm like, I knew it. She's drunk. And so my role was to navigate everybody's emotions, try and keep them from boiling over. So I never learned what my own needs and wants were, what my, I, I just gave myself, what's called giving yourself away um, to try and keep everyone and the family together. And do you, um, do you at the time remember that, you know, like your, your dad showed sign of codependency and, you know, like that kind of that, you know, like caring and, 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 you know, like, you know, like carrying that burden of having your mom, you know, like in that state. Um. As a kid, I knew nothing about codependence or any of that. But, you know, once I became an expert in yep. it, yeah, our family was massively codependent, you know, especially my mom. My mom loved to play the victim. It's how she'd control everybody. My dad was very detached. I mean, in some respects, my dad, he handled parts of her drinking very well. He knew, look, Unless they're ready to quit, there's nothing you can do. Where he failed was, you know, he could have taken us to Al-Anon. You know, he could have educated us, gotten us help, things like that. But it was basically, you know, we just don't talk about it, don't deal with it. Um, you know, I remember times coming in after school with friends. She's passed out naked on the kitchen floor. I'm dragging her up the stairs as my dad walks in from work. He just helps me and there's really no discussion about it. 
Um, I remember my dad would also shame my mom. We'd go to dinner. I remember a, a, a godfather I'd never met. He flew into town and there was this big dinner for me to meet him. Well, my mom was trash. Like she'd be in a walking coma, just barely upright. And my dad took her and she's falling over at the table and everything. He sort of figured if I embarrass her enough, that will help her. Well, the other side of it is what does it do to the kids? Like that's horrific on us. I'm sitting there and with my mother like that, it's devastating to be shamed like that in public and, you know, basically co-opted in to the dysfunction. And so my dad would, my dad was very capable, but he'd make himself helpless. You know, my mom was a classic, I guess, 1950s wife, you know, wake up every morning and my dad had come down the stairs, his coffee or juices there, his grapefruit's been cut and ready for him. You know, my mom took very good care of him. Lots of it in a very loving way, but my dad was very younger. He was very detached emotionally and he wasn't there to support my mom. Now, as he grew older, he hated psychology, didn't believe in it because his father was one of the originators of the whole Dale Carnegie, win friends and influence people west of the Mississippi. Here's a guy professing, you know, psychology and self-help, yet he's beating my father. So my dad wanted nothing to do with it. But this is what I meant. My dad didn't never walked in his potential. My was my dad was gifted at the line of work I do, but he shut that side of himself off because of his father. And so my dad, from who he was as a kid to when he died, completely different person. And he did it all just sitting there self-evaluating. And that shows how gifted he was, that if he had been given any sort of information, like the transformation he could have had. But so I give him credit for that. I But I do hold him responsible. Both my parents, they could have made a choice to learn more and, and do other things and they chose not to. And that's one thing I will never let, I don't care who the parent is. We have this thing in every society where we protect parents and we make excuses. Oh, they're doing the best we can, which is true. But one thing I learned, Alice Miller points this out. When you don't hold them accountable for them not getting you help and facing their demons and going to become an expert in parenting, relationships, trauma, all that stuff, what you're also doing by letting them off the hook and making excuses, you're robbing the child in them that went through trauma and was never given permission to heal. Yep. And that, that's the one thing people miss is no, you have to hold your parents accountable because if you don't, you're now an abuser of the child that was neglected as well. Absolutely, and yeah. That. So that, I'm, I call parents on the carpet all the time, not to say they're bad people, but it's, they deserve to be to, for the child in them that created their imperfections. That child deserves to be heard also. And to be responsabilized to yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I love that word. Perfectly said. Yes. And, and, you know, like, and it's easy, you know, like as they grow older, it's actually easy to say it's too late. You know, like he's not, you know, like he, he, he won't change. You know, like you hear this all the time, you know, like so can't change. You know, he's always been like that and, and so on. But at the same time, there's something in me that I, you know, I can continually, it's weird. You know, like my, my father just turned 70 and he was the typical, uh, I say was because he was, he really was the typical, like, very few words, 
always calm. You know, like really like the the <clears throat> typical um, strong, solid father figure. Now, right now, his life is challenged by his own wife' uh, sickness, and um, and so I, I I visit him at least once a week, and uh, he he recently started started to cry and started to share, and it's for me it's a it's 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 a wonderful blessing, even though it's sad, but you know, like it is a wonderful blessing to at least it humanized him, you know, like, he, you know, like for, he's still a saint, you know, like, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, like he took care of my brother, sister, and mom, which were all sick with muscular dystrophia. So, you know, like, the, like he gave pretty much his life to his, to his family. But at the same time, there was something about, you know, like my father not having friends, for example, you know, like it was, I, I've always found it weird. You know, like, who do you talk to? You know, like, who do you, you know, like, who do you share what you're really feeling inside? You know, like, so, and yeah. so that strong and solid and calm and passive father figure finally, you know, like, opened um, yeah. pretty much, you know, like, is inside to me and say, I'm not feeling well right now, or, you know, like, I'm sad, or, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm pissed, you know, like, which is, it's fantastic. I'm going to be 45, you know, like, next year. And, you know, like, it's, it's the first time that, you know, like, I, I, had my father sobbing on my shoulder and it was just great. You know, like it's a, it's a gift, you know, like, so you would like for me to share that, but. <laughs> my dad never quite let that. My dad died in denial. He could never let go of his pain like that, which. Wow. That it was heartbreaking to watch, but I, I had done enough recovery work. I remember when we found out he was dying and I pulled myself back and I said, okay, you have these deathbed confessions or that moment where you're going to talk about all this stuff. And I was like, six months after he's dead, looking back on this next several months of him dying, how do you want to say you handled yourself? Like, cause in the immediacy of the moment you react and, and then you regret something. And so I projected forward and went, okay, how do I want to be able to say I handled myself? And I realized, you know what? I'm not going to call him on the carpet. I'm not going to do any of that. If he wants to go there, if he wants to, really wants to, and have that discussion, okay, I'll, I'll join him. But he has to want to. And I'm so glad I did that because there was a time we were sitting on his back patio. Both my younger brother and I, we picked women who were physically and verbally abusive as spouses. And so we're having a discussion. He's like, I just can't believe the two of you would pick women like that. Like, that's just, I still don't understand that. Like, why would you guys do that? And I was like, Oh, here it is. Yep. And so I looked at him and I said, dad, are you asking me to give you that answer? And he kind of paused and well, I just, I don't know. And I was like, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want it. Yeah. And that, in that moment, that was my most proud moment because that showed me how much I'd matured that I no longer needed to blame him for my life. I'd taken responsibility. I didn't need to dump it on him so I could feel better. I could allow him to stay in denial, die the way he wanted to and love him for where he was, I didn't need him 
to give me something because yeah. that just is abuse. That's what kids do. They want their parents to give them. Well, that's just as abusive as what they went through. Yeah. And, and it's, and, you know, again, and then explode yeah. only serve a purpose of kind of self, yeah. you know, like self feeding, you know, like that, that kind yeah. of that beast, which is all but, all but po it's nothing positive. You know, like there's nothing, you, you, you don't feel relief for long, you know, so. All you're doing is is sharing. It's an umbilical cord going in a circle. You're just both spewing in the trauma and abuse that was never dealt with, and it's it's unproductive. And um, it takes a lot of work to understand those dynamics, to understand what's not codependent and what's healthy and everything. So I was it was one of one of the that, and there was another instance where he came to me and I didn't bite. And those, those were the things that I was the most proud. I mean, because of what I do for a living, I know, I mean, even the CDC, I mean, any illness or disease is caused by emotion that hasn't been dealt with. That's medically proven. Like the science is out there. We just have a pill culture, all medical schools, all but five medical schools in the U S are run by the drug companies. So every solution is, is pill based. But those just treat symptoms. That's why there are side effects because they're yep. not being the cause. But my dad's cancer was caused by the resentment. You know, it's all been proven over and over. And um, I knew all that. And my dad knew I knew all that. And I, when he first died, that was another instance. I went back to see him and I was getting ready to catch my plane. And, you know, he hugged me and he pulled back and he's like, Kenny, is there anything you can think of that could help me? And I was like, oh, my God, this is just like childhood. He's going to try and make me responsible. And the second I give him an answer, he's going to tell me no. He's going to cut my legs out. And I paused and I looked at him and I said, well, Dad, if it's something you're really interested in, there might be some ideas I could have. But you're fine the way you are if this what works for you. Like I didn't bite. And he's like, oh, like that positive affirmation stuff. And I'm like, no, that's not quite it. But if it's ever something you're curious about, you let me know. I wasn't, <laughs> I, I just, I wasn't going to play my part in the dual victimization that we had. I had learned how my trying to get him to see, look, dad, listen to me, hear me. I, you know, like that's how I spent my whole life. I played pro hockey. I did all these things to try and get my dad's attention. And in that moment, I had stopped. And it was like, no, I don't need your attention. I don't need your approval. I'm fine the way I am. You're fine the way you are. And I stayed out of it. I stopped that self-destructive, manipulative, codependent cycle we had both been on. And I allowed him to live and die the way he wanted. And those were the two moments I had. Well, the third, actually, the last time I saw him. But um, he uh, he was like, he had a day to live. And my flight left that night, and we knew he'd die the next day. And I didn't stay. I was not going to be a part because I knew he he was basically going to kill himself. And that's what I heard. He wouldn't take any medicine or anything. He kept saying, yeah, but this is going to go away. He was in so much denial. And I was like, I spent my whole life standing in front of his trauma, trying to help him. 
I'm not going to let him co-opt me into it this time. And so we knew he'd die the next day. And, and I, uh, I just said, dad, I have to go now. And, uh, he, you know, he's watching the football game. He just looks up at me and he goes, Oh, okay. Have a safe flight. Just dead blank. No emotion. Like he wasn't present. He couldn't be there. And I just looked at him and I smiled and I started crying. And I said, you know what, dad, have a good flight too. And I just left bawling, of course, knowing that's the last time I'd see him, but also incredibly proud of myself that it was okay. He got to be himself. I got to be me. It was the healthiest way for it to end. And so those were the three moments. But if I hadn't asked myself that question, I would have that night. I've been, dad, dude, you know, I'd have been trying to fix him. And I didn't do that. So yeah, for I, your last minute resort to, you know, like some kind of, yeah, uh, you know, like just finding the truth, you know, like quote unquote, you know, like finding the, like the, the big revelation, movie type revelation, you know, like yeah. never told I'm you that. Son. For him and I've got to, no, I don't. He doesn't need me there. He's made the decision on his own. It, 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 yeah, those moments. And, and there were others just in other conversations where I didn't bite, but those were the three moments. And so I really encourage everybody, if, you have, if you're lucky enough, like I'm lucky, both of my parents, we knew they were dying. And so we had time to prepare. And if you're ever going through a situation like that, that's the, to me, the greatest question you can ask is, say six months after they die, looking back on it, how do you want to say you handled yourself? Like, what would that look like? And what happens is you end up living it. And it was almost, it was like one or two days short of six months after he died. I came across a file where I'd written it all out. And I'm like, I just started crying. I'm like, my God, I did it. I did everything I said I was going to do. So I really encourage people to do that. It's about finding peace, you know, like, um, but like globally, you know, like both in terms of the, the people you're facing. Yeah. It's my, my uncle. Uh, so there, there are 13 siblings wow. in my father's family. And so wow. his closest brother, his oldest brother died a few weeks ago. And um, for, unfortunately, a week prior, another of the brothers, a older, a older one, um, left this world too. So... Um, no one expected um, that brother, which was a week away from dying, um, attending his brother's funeral. Yeah. Well, I was there with my father, and all of a sudden, there's like a, like the hair got out of the room because we turned around and he was wheeled by his son um, to pay respect to his to his brother. So um, everyone was, you know, like choked up and you know i couldn't believe he was there and obviously you know like he looked like a dying man um and all i asked him actually was are you in peace that's pretty much all i could ask because it was just so sad people were actually telling him goodbye and most of the brothers knew that that goodbye was actually the last goodbye they would tell him so um the only word i can find um, and the little, you know, like as little wise I can find myself to be you know, was to actually ask him, are you at peace? And uh, he actually told me yes. And for me, it's, you know, like it just goes full circle. You know, like we had a lot of discussion, me and that and that, that brother, my father. And um, he asked me a lot because he has a son that has uh, 
abuse, uh, abuse problems, you know, substance abuse problem. And, um, so he asked me questions and we had a lot of back and forth about this and, um, yeah, that's all I could find asking him and, and then be support for, for my dad, you know, because it was, it's probably his biggest it, you know, like in, in recent years. Um, yeah. So let me rewind that tape. Kenny, because you know, like, so you, you told me that your teens were pretty much like a, a roller coaster of finding your mom in, in, in some bad shape and, and seeing your dad either covering up or, or, you know, like playing that, that blame game. Um, you said that school took a big hit out of that, but how, um, how did you finish school? You know, like, so what was your, your what was the road emotional and both, let's say professional um, from that day on? Yeah. Well, um, from there, I mean, I, I graduated high school, but you know, barely like a one, I, I can't remember in Canada how they do the grade point system. I took classes up there, but I forget. I think, I think it's, it's by letters or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was still in numbers. I was still in numerals. Uh, and uh, so I don't know either. My, yeah. my, no, actually my daughter was on a letter system, but yeah. anyhow, you and know, like, so it, <laughs> basic, uh, less if anyone's American, a 1.8 GPA, you know, it was terrible. Um, and from there I, I left, Denver went up to Canada, played junior hockey for a couple of years before I got a scholarship to some a school in Canada. Um, I ended up playing pro hockey after that. And then I married my first wife, who, as I said, was both, both physically and verbally abusive. We had a horrific marriage. Um, I, because as a kid, I, I, like I said earlier, I didn't know my needs and wants. I wasn't allowed to have it. I, I didn't, I had no self-concept. As a kid, I used to lay in bed thinking about, I wonder who will pick me. I wonder if she'll be pretty, if she'll be nice. Like, I didn't even think I had a say in who I'd marry. And um, so she brought it up, said we should. She she asked me. I'm like, okay. I didn't know how to say no. I, I didn't know I had a choice. So that marriage lasted about uh nine years, something like that with a horrific divorce, three years, massive custody battle. Um, uh, I went through a bankruptcy because of it. And then I got remarried. Um, did you use at the time? Did you use any substances? I mean, obviously with hockey in my early, <laughs> I was 22. I wasn't the typical drunk of paper bag and, you know, drinking all day and everything. I mean, I partied like a high schooler and all that, but <clears throat> the way I used to drink is I would drink a ton and then come midnight, I'd stop because I hated hangovers. And if you remember in high school bars, well, I can't remember in Canada, but bars close at 2 AM, you go get something to eat. You're in bed three, three thirty. Well, that three, three and a half hours of no booze, by then you kind of sober up. Yep. I hated hangovers. And so that was the way I'd do it. Well, um, I only threw up a couple times maybe, but I remember the last time I drank, I remember I did that and I woke up the next day with the shakes and diarrhea. And I was, I had a high school buddy. Now he was typical. He'd pass out in high school, like right there in class. Like he was drunk all day. Like, I mean, massive. He went into recovery 18, 19 years old. So I gave him a call and said, look, I need to quit. We went to a meeting 
And from there I was sober. I forget how long it was, 20, 21 years during my second marriage. Like even anyone would suggest a drink and all I'd ever think of was the consequence, the hangover. It's like the taste sounded good, but it was always I'd see and feel the consequence go, God, I just, oh, I don't want any part of that. But my second marriage was falling apart. And I remember we were out and it's the weirdest experience because I was sitting there and remember I can feel. Yeah. And I looked at her and I went, I wonder if she'd like me again if I started drinking because I, we had conversations about what I was like when I was drinking and she's like, wow, you know, I was the typical cocky, you know, sorry, douchebag yeah. um, as a kid. And she was like, that just sounds fun or something. And so that was my thought. I said, I wonder if she'd like me if I started drinking again. And I literally, without thinking, I stood straight up, walked to the bar and ordered a double white Russian and 14 drinks later. Um, and that's what, you know, they say in, in AA, your, your alcoholism does push-ups while you're um, sober. And it did, because at that point, when I went back out drinking two or three years, I drank. Like Your alcoholism a, was in shape. It, <laughs> like I'd never done before. I mean, she'd go out of town and I would drive her to the airport seven in the morning with a drink in my cup. And she'd come back Monday mornings and I would be drunk. Like I'd go out to the bars, they all close. I'd sit in my chair start to pass out. I'd wake up, have a little more, same thing. I'd do that for a couple hours till seven, eight in the morning when the bar was opened up. I, I was drunk. Wow. Days straight. Like I was, I have times remembering driving home and then waking up going, Oh my God, where am I? Like where, what part of town am I in? And you know, I blackouts during drive. Like I was, I was bad. And, um, so that lasted two or three years and uh this july will be seven years um sober so and so you know like you you talked about you know like the first divorce being quite um damaging um it was horrific and the second marriage how, how how was it parts of it were good um because you know, in my early 20s, I started researching, one, why am I such a train wreck? I'm a pretty smart guy. I shouldn't be this dysfunctional. Um, started going to counselors, started learning about all the stuff I teach now. Um, <clears throat> but after that first divorce, um, even though she was abusive, I was like, there's something wrong with me to pick some, to end up with someone who's abusive. You know, this whole Me Too movement is garbage. Um, I can sit with anyone and in less than 10 minutes, I can show you based on your childhood, why you picked, why you put yourself in a position where you were raped or whatever it was. And it was the same case with me. Um, literally everybody it's, I talk about it in my book, it's a cycle. Everyone lives their life by, and we all choose to re-victimize ourselves. And I chose it. Now, did I know that? Am I condoning poor behavior by abusers? That's not what I'm doing. But what I'm saying is until you go do the recovery work and get out of denial, you're never free. And so that process started after my first marriage. I went into counselor, told him a little bit. He's like, what are you doing here? And I said, honestly, I don't know how to be a man. I just don't. And he said, you know, Kenny, when I was in your shoes, I went and became an expert. And that just clicked. 
something about that statement. And if he offhanded mentioned a book or something, I'd have it read by the next time we met. He was an hour and a half away each direction. And I'd go twice a week, once for group, once for working with him. Like I became consumed. I didn't want to live that way anymore. And that's when my growth really started to take off. And so I met my second wife during that process. And so the beginning of our marriage was pretty good. Was it 12 Steps Inspired? <laughs> yeah, that for that, that was a, he ran a sex addiction clinic. So I struggled okay. with alcoholism, sex addiction, um, uh, sugar, tobacco, love, and I'm forgetting one. Um, but, Food? Uh, my sugar is more my... Not, yeah. Now, I some I I have found I medicate a little bit with food now. I starved myself for thirty years, um, so because of an incident with my mom. Like people think their childhoods are great, they don't realize how even the most innocuous moment. And, and let me show you: there's over eighty percent of people say their childhood was fine, and I can ask them two questions to show them immediately how traumatic their childhood was. The first question is: Was there ever a moment? During your childhood, when you felt sad, angry, or scared at anything your parents did or said, well, we've all had that moment, those moments. Now, in that moment, could you have a conversation with them? Could you share those feelings? Could you express how scared they were? No, because every parent, get in your room, right? So that's trauma right there. You have been denied your authentic self. You can't be you and you can't express your feelings. We've all been through that. And secondly, is there any part of your life that you've kept hidden or secret from your parents? Something you don't want them to know? Well, we all do that. Well, the reason we do that is because if we tell them who we really are, they'll reject us. And, and we're a species. We're the only species on the planet that needs attachment to survive. You can put us in a crib and feed us. But unless we physically and emotionally attach to another human being, we'll die. So those two questions show how we gave up what I call our authenticity, what we're meant to pursue in the world for attachment, because we'll die without it. Well, everybody's done that. So we develop false personas, maladapted coping skills. Like I thought I was a hockey player, played pro golf. All of those were maladapt maladaptive coping skills. Listen to any athlete describe why they play the sport and they'll tell you about trauma in their childhood. Ask anyone why they're a financial advisor, they'll tell you about money issues, real estate issue, real estate agent, trauma around moving, total chaos in the home. Everything we ever do is, as adults is trauma-based. And nobody so you'd say it's, it's almost spectrum based, you know, like it's almost like a, like there's a, like a broad spectrum of level of trauma Everybody, and how, yeah, and how we cope engaged. with it. Nobody, well, we don't cope with it, but people think they're coping with it, but they're in massive denial. I mean, that's the cycle. You'd have to read my book to understand yeah. the whole process, but the bottom line is this, think of it. You know who Tom, I know you're Canadian. I can't, re, I haven't watched CFL in a while to think of who the best quarterback is now, but Warren Moon, take Warren Moon when he was great, yep. um, or Tom Brady. Here are men that since they were four or five years old have practiced for 30 some years with coaches and experts, dietitians, all these professionals around them to hone their skill. They are the best. Tom Brady might be the best quarterback that's ever walked this planet. 
And yet all day, every day, he throws incompletions, fumbles, and interceptions. He screws up nonstop. Yet every single, almost 80% of the people think their childhood was perfect when not a single parent has ever been taught how to be a parent. You tell me how that's possible and how they weren't traumatized. It's not. But that's how much denial we're in as a society when it comes to these issues. That's why I started the movement I started is everybody's in pain. And all they've used is maladaptive coping skills to suppress it. So they don't even know it. And then my ability, I can sit with anyone in 10 minutes. I can map out your whole life based on your trauma history. Anybody, the most sane, productive, successful person. I can show you how how everything is developed from their trauma. It's it's science-based too. It's not just opinion. Like I back it all up in my book. It's all there of how the brain and body work and everything. So um, I forget the original question. We were talking about um, um, a spectrum of trauma, spectrum, you know, like the, the, yeah, where where you know, like and the coping, not necessarily the coping, but for me, it's just the the yeah, it's almost mathematical. The yeah. the traumas versus the reaction or 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 the results of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what I was going to get to was food. When yeah. I was 12, 13 years old, I was reaching into the refrigerator to grab cottage cheese. I was hungry. And my mom goes, no, 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 no. That's for the dogs. Well, what my mom meant was when the dogs are sick, she used the cottage cheese to hide the dog's pills. Well, as a kid, what I heard was, if you eat, you get in trouble. If you eat, mom doesn't like you and mom yells at you. And oh, by the way, in this house, we feed the dogs before we feed the kids. Now that's not what we said, but since we're not taught how to be a parent, we don't know the impact. We don't know how to deliver that message in a way that's non-abusive. And so for 30 years, you'd ask me to eat. I'm like, oh, I hate eating. It bores me. I'm playing pro hockey. I'm living off three super big gulps and like a ding dong every day. That's it. I refuse to eat. It's a, I thought I was a person who just didn't like food. Well, no. And so when people tell me their personality, I'm sarcastic on this. All you're doing is telling me your maladaptive trauma coping skills. That's it. That's all anybody's ever doing. And they think that's them. Just like I thought I was an athlete. No, I, I played hockey for three reasons. One, because, um, In my house, my dad was the only one who was allowed to get angry. So I became a goalie. Who's to blame if I let in a goal? Me. Who can I yell at? Me. Also, because of my ability to feel, I was always ostracized in the family. The second I'd speak, no one would talk to me. Well, a goalie doesn't even sit on the bench. He's completely isolated. See, I like it. What people don't realize is we all live our life like a 3D movie. You ever watch a 3D movie without the glasses? You notice how the colors and everything are jumbled and twisted, but you kind of know what's going on. That's literally everyone's life. What they don't realize is every choice, their friends, their hobbies, their partners, their careers, is their trauma playing out right in front of them, screaming back at them what they need to address, what's keeping them from what I call their greatness and reclaiming their authentic self that they had to give up for attachment begging them to do the work and forgive themselves. But what are they missing? The glasses. Well, I discovered the glasses and a perfect example of it. 
when I started piecing all of this together, I have a newspaper article from 32 years ago, right before my brother signed a contract with the Islander, New York Islanders, and a couple years later, I was going to turn pro. And the top of the article says, sibling rivalry led to ice proficiency for brothers. The first two paragraphs talk about how my older brother would beat the hell out of me and, and even lawn furniture and knives thrown in his direction wouldn't stop my older brother. And the second paragraph starts out, it goes, but Kenny figured it out. What Kenny realized when his older brother would put him in the net while playing street hockey and fire frozen tennis balls at his head, he realized if he stopped his brother, it would piss him off. He got his revenge. The only reason I ever became a pro goalie was to beat up my older brother. See, that's what we do. When trauma happens, we lose our inherent power, our sense of self. So we all choose to re-victimize ourselves to get our power back because at least I'm choosing it. I'm in control of it. I never wanted to be a goalie. I And I have a newspaper article screaming at me, the 3D movie going, look, Kenny, you don't want to do this. You're just trying to overcome the trauma that you went through. And because as a society, we refuse to teach or deal with any of this, you know, no other way. And this is what everybody does. Every choice they ever make until they do the work, until they know what I'm talking about and do the recovery work, every choice they're choosing to re-victimize themselves because it's the only way we know how to get our power back. And that's what we all do. And so why did I pick somebody who was physically and verbally abusive? Well, my older brother used to hold me by my head and pummel me. He was huge. I couldn't get near him. Well, have you ever been hit by a woman? Exactly the same feeling, paralyzed. Not a damn thing I could do about it. Again, I'm not condoning her abuse, but I picked it. I wanted it. I was trying to get the control I lost. And that's why I say the Me Too movement is bogus. I could sit with anyone and walk them through their childhood and they go, oh my God, he's right. I put myself with this rape, this situation yeah, because of what I went through. And it breaks my heart that they're in so much pain and no one's giving them the way out. This is the way out. Because until you can see the part you played in it, you're forever a prisoner, forever. And so that's, that's what I teach is, and I haven't heard anybody out there, like most of my clients, they've been to the great thought leaders we have all learned from and read their books. They're brilliant people. They've been to counselors, therapists. They've been to all this self-development stuff. They've learned, they've grown just like I did. But when I was suicidal, I spent three days in my apartment trying to write my kids a suicide note. Can you tell me, Kenny, what led up to this? You know, like just before, yeah, just before yeah. you you get to that, that what was, led up second, to that? That was the second marriage. Um, well, and also it's the way trauma recovery works. I'd been working my tail off for years. Over that 10-year period, I probably spent seven years working with my counselor trying to overcome my original trauma. And I'd made a lot of progress. But there are some life events that you need to go through until you're ready. And that was my second marriage. This is what's funny. Remember, I can feel people. The first day I met my second wife, I've only had this experience once. I was waiting outside of the restaurant and it was with this only time was with her. And I turn around on our first date. She's about 20 feet away. And I felt hit. I took a step back and I went, oh, my God, she's the devil. Wow. I saw it, it was in her eyes and dripped off of her. 
Well, I had just come from a marriage where we had 12 instances of intimacy in 10 years. An instance could be kind words, physical touch, or any type of a sexual act. Well, my second spouse was a narcissistic sociopath, a black widow. They survive off sucking the emotion out of somebody. She was an escort, highly sexual. It destroyed me, completely destroyed me. She sucked the life out of me. And that's what black widows do. They survive. You ever watch the old movie, the Schwarzenegger one, um, The Predator? Yeah. Remember how the predator survives? It cloaks himself and then it sucks everything off of a human being and leaves a skeleton. That was me. I have been through horrific physical and emotional trauma in my life. But during that divorce, the withdrawal from a narcissistic sociopath, I, when you're in pain, what's the greatest relief? Sleep, right? It's the only yeah. thing you don't think, feel, like just let me sleep. I cannot describe what it's like to be awakened in the middle of the night because I was convulsing so hard because I was crying so hard in my sleep. I couldn't even get freedom in my sleep. I was in so much pain. And that's what led me to the suicide. I put it in my book. I put the letter that I actually, a letter I wrote to my counselor when I was contemplating it and what the pain felt like. And I was trying to write my kids. And the easy part was describing the pain. But when I tried to justify it, when I was like, here's why, and it's a good reason, kids, by then... And this is why I advocate we all need to become experts in our pain, trauma, codependence, all this stuff. What saved my life was every sentence I wrote, I'm like, that's codependence, that's transference, that's projection. I knew too much psychology. I could not shrink myself. I knew it was yeah. all bogus. So that's when I went into my office and I wrote down, I want to come up because in that moment, I realized I've been to all these great people. I've read all their books. I'm a smart guy, yet here I am. Something's wrong in this whole self-help, personal development, counseling dynamic. I shouldn't be here. So I went back in my office and I wrote down, I want to come up with a process that nobody's discovered that'll fundamentally change society. Well, I discovered that process. Over the next year and a half, I switched into how the brain and body work, the science, and I saw correlations that are so obvious and no one, no one's made the connection. No one's talking about it. I'm like, it's right here. Like they're telling you, Here's the answer. Why, why won't these personal development and counselors talk about this? And so it's all in my book. That became the process. And the second wave became the greatness movement. That's the societal change. And it has really two missions. One, give people the skills, tools, and knowledge. It's criminal. We know nothing about emotions, parenting, or relationships. It's just criminal that we never learn about that. I want to change that. But even the second part is even more important. We have an inherent fear and bias in society about talking about dealing with or getting help with any of those things. We all know I know what to do. I, I watch my parents. I, I don't need to go. No. And I'm going, that has to change. It has to be the complete opposite of our first instinct because we've all been it's, through trauma, is to go learn about it and overcome it. Because most of the time, that's what we see, right? It's it's yeah. the the opposite swings of successive, uh, you know, like the ge genealogical <laughs> parenting. You know, like, so you do the opposite of what 
you know, like the your, your actually your parents does the opposite of what they saw their parent do, and you tend to do the opposite of what your parent did, and yeah. it's kind of a like a like an emotional uh, swing of you know like I'm gonna be that the, the other end of the spectrum. Yes. Um, yeah. So if she's, you, you, my you, denial some, killed yeah. my dad, and I'm an expert in denial. Denial, denial is the least talked about subject on the planet today. Yet it is it is the single greatest killer in society, and most people don't even know how it operates. They don't even know they're in denial. It's classified as a defense mechanism. My book is my next book is titled titled The Answers in the Opposite, and it's all about how literally almost everything we've learned is wrong. It's all denial based. The answer is actually in the opposite, and I prove it and show it. I can't wait for that book to get out. It'll piss off a lot of people because they'll be, they'll, I confront your denial. Well, we don't have the emotional development to handle that truth. Well, the only way to handle that, to have enough self-esteem to see your denial is you have to face your denial. Because think of it, if I'm in truth about who I am, self-esteem rises. It's the only way. Well, the only way for self-esteem rise is to see your imperfections, your brokenness, and become an expert in them, then the scales shift. That's the yeah. only way to overcome it. Yet everyone's trying to get, you know, you watch Facebook, everyone's positive memes and gag me. It's just, it's it's a sugar pill on top. But I hate that shit. I hate that shit. Studies show depressed people and everybody, the more you do that, the more depressed because it's not truth. They're covering over their denial. Yeah. Gallup did a poll just two years ago. 87% of the population is unhappy in the world. That shows you the personal development field is broken and they're all pushing, be happy, think positive. First of all, that's a lie. We feel before we ever think how our brain and body works. You literally feel before you ever think, yet everybody in this field wants to get you to think and talk positive. No, you need to learn how to shift the way you feel. And other than myself, well, there are a couple other people who kind of dance around it, but nobody like I do. No, here's the exact process. Let me show you. <clears throat> I read countless books on how to believe in yourself, right? Everyone says you got to believe in yourself. Has anyone ever described how you create belief? I read books and books and every single one of them were stories of people had no belief, wake up one day, they believe in themselves and get everything they want, but they never described what happened. It was like the hand of God just went, you believe in yourself. No, well, Kenny, it's the secret. Yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> and, and so what's, well, the secret is great. It works when you've done trauma recovery. The people, the reason people can't get there is because of their trauma. That's a whole nut. You'd have to have me on and I could explain all of that. <laughs> but here's how belief works. Think of it. You Do you play a sport growing up? Uh, yeah, snowboard. I was oh, not a, like a, yeah, snowboard. Did you compete at anything, take tests, anything like that? Uh, no, no, unfortunately. Okay. Well, you took yeah. tests in school, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Do you remember the experience before the test? You've studied, gone to class, everything. You're walking in and you're like, I'm going to nail it. I got this, right? I can feel yep. it. And you know, and you go in and you kill it. Now, you've had the exact opposite experience, studied, gone to class, everything. You walk in and you're like, oh, my God, I've got to find a way to get. How can I get out of this? Can I get a doctor's note? Like 
And then you go, oh, no, no. Like I call it the Nike philosophy. Come on, just do it. Get positive. I can do it. You start talking positive, which everybody wants you to do. And what happens? You bomb the test. <clears throat> well, you just proved to yourself how to create belief. Belief is when your feelings and your thoughts line up. Remember, you felt it. You felt walking in. I've got this. Listen to any athlete after their greatest game, when they're in the zone, all they will talk about is their feelings. I felt it. I felt it. I felt it. Yet everyone in this industry is talking thought. Waste of time. Not a waste, but everything is feeling based. You want to live in the zone? You have to learn how to feel it. And nobody's teaching you how to do that. That's what I'm an expert in. And that's what my books, courses, everything is about. And the only way to change the way you feel is you have to become an expert in your trauma history. That's it. It's the only way out. And that's a denial-based process, shame-based. I, I lay the whole process out in my book of how to do it. So, Kenny, how, you know, like, what were the, you know, like, how were the last years paved on, you know, like, so you, you, you go through that, that kind of that traumatic experience of actually, you know, like sitting down and writing, a, you know, like a, a you know, suicide note, literally, um, to kind of, you know, giving yourself a purpose or giving yourself a mission to find something, you know, like find a way to overcome that, you know, because that's pretty much your, my guess is that you, you would consider that the bottom of your own barrel here. Um, um, what, when was that? How many that years was, was that ago? 2014. Yeah. So five years ago. Yeah. Um, what did the last five years look like since? Very quiet. Just peaceful. I mean, it's not like every day is perfect, but uh, just not much affects me. <laughs> like yeah. people call bad days. See, I've learned whenever something bad happens in your life, it's the 3D movie showing you where you're in denial. What, like I wake up every day begging for what most people would call bad things to happen. Because I love it because I get excited. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to learn. This is another piece of trauma, another way for me to deal with that gap between denial and self-esteem. And so the more I confront it, the more this goes up. And so when you attack, like I get attacked on my podcast because people don't like to hear this stuff. I'm very not in your face, but everybody's in denial and I can. I can point it out instantly. Well, they get defensive. Their low self-esteem makes them attack me. It, it doesn't bug me because I recognize how denial works. You're actually telling me about your own pain. You're not even talking to me. And so my life's just very peaceful. Um, if I have a day where I'm sad, I sit in it and I'm like, isn't this great that I can feel this? And yeah. it's wonderful. Like think of life if it was just black and white, be pretty boring. My life has all this massive range of emotions, but they're all filled with color. Whether they're so-called happy or sad, they're, to me, they're the same. They're both a gift. I Most people are running away from those, what they would call bad or negative feelings. I don't. I go right at them. So to me, they're just the same as what most people would call great feelings or I'm happy. There's, I don't. I don't distinguish between the two. They both get me excited and I can be in peace 
here. That's the biggest difference is I know it's okay. I'm okay. I have the skills, tools, and knowledge now to navigate it. I never had it before. And that's the big difference. And so, and so finally, before asking you where, where can people find you, um, I have to thank you. You know, like the, the, you have, you have, you know, like my guests have no idea, you know, like the, the feeling I get when people accept and, you know, like, uh, acknowledge and, and, you know, get, get on the podcast. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. <laughs> I'm a curious individual that wanted to share, you know, like people's, people's life story, show people that it's possible to get out of, you know, like the funk of, you know, like, uh, either, you know, abusing alcohol, abusing drugs. And, you know, like, so, um, that was pretty much my first intent. And then, you know, like, and, and by broadening my, my arise, my own horizon, I'm sharing, um, I'm sharing new ways. And I love, I love right now that, you know, like I'm getting the, the opportunity to have someone like you, Kenny, to actually talk about other approaches, other methods, um, and and for me it's just like uh personally it's it's a it's a major eye opener you know like the the relation to spirituality for example and then and then your own um you know like your your own method of you know like kind of facing your fears and facing your you know like some of the denial mechanism that you know like we've we've initiated um so i i, I i'm humbled and and just um in grace of you know like the uh, how people are responding to that you know like so first of all thanks a lot kenny you know like it, it was a it was a fantastic hour spent with you um and the last thing i would ask you is you know like where can we find you you know like so yeah well thank you first of all for having me i appreciate the opportunity to share you know what you know what i think can help people and and give me a chance to reach more people that hopefully um, it sparks something. They're like, yeah, I need to check this out. And if that's you, um, the easiest way is just Google me, Kenny Weiss. The last name is W E I S S. What you're going to find is my website, which is www.thegreatnessmovement.com. You're going to find an Amazon link to my book, which is called your journey to success. You can get that in paperback, audible, or Kindle. Um, you're going to see my YouTube channel, I have got 200 videos, all different range of topics, um, all the deeper things that I talk about. Um, you'll see my podcast, which I do live on Facebook and YouTube at 7 p.m. Arizona time um, every Sunday night. Uh, what else am I forgetting? You know, there's face, just my Facebook page, LinkedIn page, Instagram. You can add me on any of those. You can subscribe to the Greatness Movement newsletter. Um, just by going to the website. Um, so yeah, if, if any of this is struck a chord and if you're, if any of this is like, wow, this could really help me and I need some help. I work with individuals all across the country and out of country. And you can just call me at 480-729-3270 if you're looking for somebody to help you through your struggles. So, um, those are the, the, the that's the best way to find me. Awesome. Thanks again, uh, Kenny, and uh, hope you know. Like I, I wish you the best. You know, like it was uh, just uh, you know, like I, I myself found a sponsor that you know I like could challenge me face. Yeah. You know, like just that it's not confronting. It's just like 
look at the bullshit <laughs> you're, you're spitting out right now, you know, like, and, and face this, which created, you know, like for, for the last 13 years that I know him, um, kind of my own self-defense mechanism or myself, um, me instinctively thinking, you know, like, uh, uh, okay, I don't necessarily need to call him. I, I know what he's going to tell me. And, um, and so hearing someone, you know, like from, from your side of, of the, you know, like it's, it's a few hours away from me, uh, telling me something that, you know, like I, I can absolutely relate to, uh, and I'm sure some of my listeners will, you know, like it's, like you said, struck a chord, you know, like to their own, uh, uh, reasoning i i loved it so um thanks again kenny and you know long life to the uh, greatness movement appreciate it thanks so much thank you bye bye